Amen. You can be seated. Why don't we take a moment just to talk to the Waymaker. Father, we come before you. We thank you that uh, you make a way when we can't see a way. You are working even when we can't see it. Lord, we thank you for days like these days where we can just get away from normal days and be able to just focus on you and think about eternity and think about that day when we will see you face to face. Lord, I thank you for the privilege of being here. Thank you for how you use your word to be able to partner with Gary. And uh, I pray that you'd continue to speak through your word and that your spirit would change our lives. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I don't know about you guys. Uh, boy, I just appreciate so much Gary's words this morning. I, I really, I, I just, I, I, I don't appreciate him showing the video and uh, we watching it and I get all teary and snotty in my mask uh, during it. But other than that, uh, I, I did. It's just so good. And, and I, I love how God works these things because uh, you're going to get a tag team today. Both Jesus and Paul are focused on the same thing of, of how do we live for this day? How do we live with this in mind? If you got your Bibles, turn to Philippians 3. And one of the things I love about the Apostle Paul, he's always been a hero of mine. And when I was in college, I, I had a, uh, a mentor who gave me several works on Paul. F.F. F. Bruce has got a book, Apostle of the Heart Set Free, and just Paul's life with that. And, and I, don't, I don't think anybody has been able to live this out in the way that Jesus described more than Paul did. And he never loses his passion for it. In fact, if you've got your Bibles, you can see it in your notes there, and we'll look at it in more detail a little later, but Paul's singular focus there in Philippians 3.13, when he says, one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. That, that ability to keep that in focus. And I, I don't know about you, I can lose it so quickly. I lose it in daily life. Now, every so often we have weekends like this that help us refocus, or sometimes you have a life event. You, you ever had like a, even a near-death experience that you get real focused? In fact, for me, the closest I ever came to dying was uh, back in the 90s, Lee and I, uh, we'd been married a few years. We lived in Bangkok, Thailand. We went over to Bangkok for a couple of years. We worked at International Christian School and planted a small English-speaking church. And I loved Bangkok. I loved Southeast Asia. We loved living in the city. Big, massive city. Especially back in the 90s, the biggest problem in Bangkok was the traffic. It was horrendous. They had no real public transportation. They've got a sky train now and some other things. But you, would, you could spend hours in traffic at time if you caught it the wrong time. And so what I would do, I noticed there's these guys on the street corner, ones that live right by our little apartment there, and they'd have these uh, silk vest on and motorcycles, and somebody told me they're motorcycle taxis. And you just go, you negotiate the fare with them, and they take you, and it cuts out hours because they're weaving through traffic, they're going places cars can't go. It's awesome except for one thing. Every time you ride it, you're taking your life in your hands. You, literally, people die on them all the time. But I was so impatient. I'm like, yeah, I, I had this one guy, and we would go all the time. And I remember one day we were trying to get back to the little apartment we lived on in this alley. We lived, the street leading into it, the buildings were built right up on it. It's just this narrow street. 
And we're sitting there stopped in traffic. In Bangkok, you drive on the other side of the road. And, and so he kind of noses out, and we notice that we're stopped, and it's because where it's turning back in is so backed up, and we knew that light there would keep us backed up forever. But we also noticed nobody's coming the opposite direction. It's clear. And if you look way down ahead, you could see, oh, wait, they're stopped. They've got problems. And so my driver got over into that lane. And we started going. And, you know, I'm watching the cars, and I'm like, this is why I ride motorcycle taxis. I'm not stopped like you people. Except that when we looked ahead, our lane that was coming toward us cleared. And literally coming down, it was a literal Mack truck. And, and so the driver kind of went to get back in our lane, but the cars had sat there so long that they were literally within inches of each other and there was no place to get back in. And it was so tight, you couldn't even be next to them. So then he went over to the other side and I was holding on because we were going to just have to bail out. The street was a little bit above the shops and, and restaurants that were on that level. And I thought, we're just going to have to go into one of those shops. We don't have any choice. But somewhere along the way, my driver was looking at it, and he had determined, instead of stopping, if we went really, really fast, we could get back in before the Mack truck got to us. And I still, to this day, I can remember the sensation as I'm holding on, prepared to bail out, and instead of braking, he guns it. And he's is screaming. This motorcycle, you know, it's one of those little ones. We're just flying. And he starts screaming through the gears. I mean, we're in second. We're in third. And, then, and it's going faster. And I see the shops going and the cars. And I'm seeing it coming. And it scared me so bad, I just started screaming. I literally, I was like, ah! And then what scared me more is he started screaming. I mean, both of them, ah! And it's going fast. And I could see that gap closing and the truck coming. And I had visions of me laying in a coffin with Mac right across the cheek. And like out of a movie, I could almost reach out and touch this truck that did not slow down. And I'm sitting there right there. And then he cuts back in at the last second. And he pulled over into this kind of burned out building that had a space. He just stopped there for a minute. I had tears going down my cheek. And I kind of collected myself and I started hitting him on the helmet. I was like, stupid! What were you thinking? He's like, I'm sorry. I'll never forget, we, we went around the corner and my heart was beating and got to our apartment and I took off the helmet and I handed it to him and he smiled at me and said, no charge. <laughs> No charge. You know, when I went back into the room, just sat there, and I was in my 20s at that point. I hadn't lived much life. But, but it was that experience where you see literally all of your life kind of flash before your eyes. You think, well, what if this was it? It's amazing the moment, that, that focus that comes in. One of the things, when, when I say Paul's a hero, I, I love the Apostle Paul because as I study throughout his life, as I read it, and we're, we're reading a book that this is near the end of his life. But he's never lost that focus. This always stayed in the forefront, this, this day when he was going to appear before Jesus. And he keeps that kind of singular perspective. And so as I look at it, I go, 
Christ, how do I develop that more? And I, I love how, again, how God does this, the tag teaming of what Gary taught this morning and, and then to come back with what Paul teaches of how to live this out. And I think Philippians 3 it's one of those passages we could do a whole sermon series on almost every verse. I want to look at it kind of globally, though, big picture perspective, because I think in it, you see how Paul has it and how we can have that kind of perspective and how we can change our perspective. Let me walk you through it. Look at the first principle here. If you want to have this kind of perspective, I would say you need to complete an internal audit of your life. Complete and eternal audit of your life. Just take some time in life. It's the same things we grappled with in the first session of what are the things that matter most. And, and when I say a com eternal audit, you know, if you have a simple audit on one page, you could put what are my assets and what are my liabilities. In fact, if you look in your notes there, you, you can see the, the first thing of the assets and liabilities. Here's how most people complete an eternal audit. On one side, on the assets, what I did right, and on the other side, what I did wrong. And by the way, this is a picture of every religion on the planet. This is everybody's system on the planet right there. Now, we might define right differently. So if you're a Muslim, you know, what you did right would be, I kept the five pillars of Islam, and hopefully when I stand before Allah, he's going to do the eternal scales, and there's more there than I did wrong. Or if you're a Buddhist, I kept the eightfold path. That's the right. Or if I'm a Hindu, one of the three ways of enlightenment, and hopefully I did enough right that I can get out of this cycle of having to do it over and over again. All different ways of defining it, they all come down to this, though. Of how do I, I balance my life? Even the most secular person in the world, if you were to really dig down and go, hey, how do you evaluate your life? People, it's amazing, they, they immediately kind of go to that place. Well, I did more right then I did wrong. And hopefully that balances out. I'm a good person in that. Even Christians do this. We, we like to add things to the right column. And it's part of what the church in Philippi, they're struggling with because some teachers were coming around. And Paul, he, he really doesn't like these guys. He calls them dogs even, like wild animals. And they were adding to Christianity. That if you were going to be right before God, if you're going to be a Christian, there's some things that you've you got to do over in that column. And specifically for them, they were saying, you can't just throw out the Old Testament law. And at the very least, you have to be circumcised if you're a male. I mean, those are the ways that you're right with God. And so they're adding on to Christianity. And at the beginning of the chapter, I love how kind of Paul goes through it because he said, hey, if you want to look at people in that column, I had more right than anybody else. And he just goes down the line with it. He said, I was circumcised on the eighth day, just like the law said. I was of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm not one of those flunky tribes, Simeon, Naphtali, all those. Benjamin, first king of Israel, Benjamin. He, he said, I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. In other words, my, my blood was pure. I mean, that was pure Hebrew. I was a Pharisee. You don't talk about spiritual leaders, Pharisee. I was so zealot, I would persecute the church. I mean, he said, I, if you looked at the law, I was blameless. No one could pick out one of the laws and say that Paul had violated them. I mean, he goes, I've got the list of what was right. But look how he summarizes it. Look in verse 7 with me. 
Look how Paul summarizes. He says, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. And now he's talking about that whole list, all those things I did right. I count them as rubbish. You might underline that word rubbish. Uh, that I'm reading out of the English Standard Version. Uh, the Translation Committee actually has a number of British people on the Translation Committee, and, and I can't help but they really influence this translation. Rubbish. Seems like such a proper British word. In, in, uh, in Greek, the word is skubala. It's skubala, and Paul actually chooses it because he wants to shock us a little bit. Skubala actually is dung, feces. Probably the closest to it would be the, the S word. Paul's saying, I mean, I count it as scubula. I'll just use that S word. Right. And, and, and the reason he's saying it that way is he's not trying to be edgy preacher. He's just going, if you look at all that and you add it up, man, it's worthless. Now, is he saying everything people do in life is bad and all that? No, he's saying, but in the divine reckoning, in the divine accounting of what really matters, you, you can spend your whole time on it and lose what matters. And sometimes you need this point where you step back and you look at these things in perspective and you go, oh, am I doing that? It's so easy to get caught up in. It, it all depends on what your goal is. I mean, if your goal is to get into med school and you show up with a resume and they go, well, what'd you make on the MCAT? Well, I didn't take the MCAT. What'd you make on your science classes? Well, actually, I was an art major. Now, can I show you some of my sculptures? Sculptures are beautiful, but they're worthless trying to help you get into med school. I mean, it's the same thing. I, right now, I'll make a deal with you. I'll make a deal with anybody here. If you give me $25, I'll give you $20,580. You look skeptical. No one's moving on it. I really can't. I've got it right here. I got $20,580 for $25. $20,580. In every box of Monopoly, there is $20,580. So for about $25 at Walmart, I just priced it. You can get a new Monopoly set. And I can make that exchange with you. Now you look at it and you go, Tim, it's monopoly money. Do you realize the real estate you can buy with this? <laughs> Do you know how many houses? How many hotels? I mean, like you get these 500s and you can make it rain. <laughs> I promise you, playing monopoly when you have all the money is so much fun. But see, the reason we don't do the exchange, at some point it all goes back in the box. At some point the game's over and you have to go back to real life. And so nobody wants to give real money for something so short-sighted. And yet as Jesus said, how many people would forfeit their soul something that doesn't last I'd encourage you look how Paul says 
I counted rubbish in order that I may gain Christ be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. I don't want something that I earned. That won't last. But that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. This, this righteousness, this being right with God that can only come from God, that can only be established by Christ, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection of the dead. I want everything to be accounted for that day when I'm resurrected and I stand before him. Here's Paul's audit. Look at the audit of Paul's life. He just moves everything in his life over to the wrong. And then the assets over there is what Christ did. What Christ did. He says, you, you want to look at what I have value in my life? It's what Christ did. You want to know what lasts in my life? It's what Christ did. You, you want to know what I'm banking on my life? It's what Christ did. And so I'm going to spend my life trying to understand what he did and what he's continuing to do in me for the rest of my life. Because I have a focus for that day. Maybe sometime today it'd be worth taking some time and auditing your life. You're having two messages in a row on it. I think God wants you to hear it. Of thinking about that. Second thing, admit you're not there yet. Admit you're not there yet. Look what Paul says in verse 12. Not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own. I, I, I love this. Because, as I said, you know, I admire Paul. In my mind, living this kind of life, Paul is the goat. He's the goat. I'm not talking about the animal. I'm talking about the goat. Greatest of all time. The goat. If you're a sports fan, we argue about this all the time. Like, who's the goat in basketball? Michael Jordan, of course. Yeah, okay. Don't come at me with LeBron, please. All right? There's a goat in football. Yeah, as much as it pains me, it's Tom Brady. I would have said Montana a few years ago, but Brady, he's, he's got too many pelts against the wall there. I mean, you look at these guys, and, and notice those two, Jordan and Brady and those ones that are that. It's not just that they're superstar athletes. You look at that drive and determination. They don't stop. I don't think Brady's ever going to stop. And this is what I love. Here's Paul. He's in a prison. He's written and he continues to write all these books, writes more books in the New Testament than anybody else. He's planted all these churches. He's traveled more miles. He's done more, literally more than anybody. I mean, you would think by this stage, you're in a prison. You're about to go see Nero. Isn't it about time that you could go, okay, I'm kind of done? He goes, no. I haven't arrived. I'm not there yet. And, and I encourage you, I, I hope that we don't ever lose that. We never think we've arrived. Because at least then the third thing is quit living in the past. Quit living in the past. Philippians 3, 13, he continues on. One thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. One thing I do, I forget what lies behind. 
And, and for many of you, this is probably one of the key points because you're stuck with what lies behind. You can't live for this day because you're so haunted by these days. And it's different ways. Some of you, you need to forget the failure of the past. You need to forget the failure of the past. Now, when I say that, I'm not talking about that we gloss over, but isn't it amazing that we have a God who is omniscient, he knows all things, but he purposely chooses, when he describes our sins in Christ, he purposely describes it as forgetting the past, that it's taken away. And yet, you know, in in years, I've been a pastor for 30-something years now, and I can't tell you how many people I get in my office and we start talking, and at some point the conversation kind of turns, and how many people are haunted by something in their past? The shame of an event. They kind of, they almost look around like someone's about to hear them. And then I want to tell you this. And as you process and work through that, I, I would encourage you, if you have something in your life, even as you think about it now, that shame is your first response, it's probably something you still need to deal with. And you may have dealt with it too quickly. Christ forgives very quickly. But part of dealing with our past is we deal with the wounds that we created. We mourn over our sins. Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn. God loves a broken and contrite heart. I love how Lewis Smead puts it. He said, if forgiving ourselves comes easy, chances are we're only excusing ourselves ducking the blame and not really forgiving ourselves at all. One of the key signs for me as I work through forgiveness and issues in my life is when I stop trying to hide them. Uh, Paul was very quick to admit his failures. I mean, he said, I was a persecutor of the church. He calls himself the chief of sinners. He's never hiding his past, but he's not defined by them. He's defined by the grace of Christ in those events. And some of you, maybe there's something in your life you've really never let that grace do its good work to free you of it. Some of you need to forget your success. Success. And you're here and you go, you know, Tim, I was an elder in the church for 40 years. Praise God. We've been coming to Mount Hermon 50 years in a row. Praise God. I've walked with Jesus. I've read through the Bible 15 times. I mean, all these great things with that. But you know what? That was yesterday. Paul goes, yeah, that's all great. Yeah, I'm still pressing on. I'm still moving forward. You know, I've had 30 years of marriage and have been completely faithful to my wife in that time. And so thankful for it. Thankful for the foundation that gives. But I would squander all of that if starting today... I let my heart wander. I let my eyes go. So there's this part of building on the foundation of the past, but not being trapped by it. Third category, I'd say, and and this is probably the most difficult one, some of you need to forget the wounds. And again, I I don't say that you're going to ever forget fully the events if you've been wounded deeply by someone. But I know many people that live trapped in it. It becomes their identity. 
or those barbs of resentment. You may not be able to reconcile with everyone. Reconciliation is a two-way street. You may have damaging people in your life that you need boundaries from. You may not be able to reconcile, but you can always forgive. Because Christ forgave you. I love how Gary Preston tells the story of a, a missionary years ago was in what was then known as Burma. And he was traveling across this stream. And he got to the other side of this shallow stream, kind of went up to his waist. And he looked down. And on his torso and legs were leeches. They had attached on. And his first response was he wanted to reach down, just grab them and pull them off. And uh, the guide with him said, don't do that. If, if you just pull it off, you're, you're going to leave a portion of the head. It'll stay and it'll get infected. And so as much as his temptation was to rip it, he said, come with me. And he took him to a warm salt balsam bath. He said, I just want you to sit in this. I want you to rest in this. And the more you sit here, the leeches will release and you'll be free. As Preston described it, he said, you know, if you've been wounded, if someone's hurt you, if someone's struck you or did something in your past, and all of us can probably look at events like that, he said the temptation is we're so tired of it, we hate the pain of it, we just on our own, just rip it away and be done with it. But the problem is those seeds of bitterness, the little head of resentment that stays there, and it festers. So the answer is, is we have to choose, okay, I'm going to sit and be bathed in the love and forgiveness of Christ for me. And the more I realize what he's done in my life, the more I experience that forgiveness, it gives me the freedom to forgive. Some of you have someone you need to forgive. Probably not because they deserve it. They may not have changed at all. But Christ calls you to it. And it will give you a freedom to live forward instead of saying stuck backwards. See, Paul does this audit of his life and, and he says, I'm not there yet, but I'm forgetting what lies behind. Look at the fourth thing that he calls us to. Focus on the finish line. Focus on the finish line. That second part of that verse in 13, he says, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He said, I'm not just running to run. I run to win. I don't just box against air. I, I love Paul also because he loves sports. He used sports analogies all the time. And he said, man, like an athlete, Man, you dedicate yourself to it because you're running with that finish line in your focus. And I love how the writer of Hebrews puts it. He says, as you're running this race, you strip off the things, you get rid of the sins that are holding you back, the weights of this world. And as you run, notice where he says our focus should be? Focusing on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. See, the finish line for every Christian I don't know how long you'll live. I don't know how many days in front of you. Only God knows that. But I do know who's standing there when you cross it. 
And as you look at him, here's this reminder. Every time I focus on Jesus, I'm always reminded, oh man, this whole thing came from you. You're the author of this. You started this. The only reason I have salvation at all is because of you. And then I'm also reminded, and you're going to finish this. You're not done with me. Paul told these Philippians in chapter 1, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. And you're not completed yet. You know, from time to time, I've been able to go to the, the Billy Graham Center in Asheville, North Carolina, and speak at the Cove. And I always love to go there because when, when you walk this hallway they have of all these pictures of Billy's life, every time I go, I, I, I've always appreciated Billy Graham. I always leave, though, really appreciating Ruth, his wife, and her impact with it. And, and it, it's awesome. One day she was driving through Carolina there, and she was on the interstate, and there was a lot of road construction. And uh, she got to the end of it, and there was a sign. And as soon as she saw the sign, she wrote it down. And she told her kids, she said, this is what I want on my tombstone. And what she had put on it was from that road construction sign. It says, end of construction, thank you for your patience. <laughs> I thought, that's a great perspective. See, Jesus started this thing. Jesus is going to finish it. And he's not done with me. And he's not done with you. And the more I focus on him, it gives me that perspective. Oh, it never started with me, and it's not going to end with me. I've just got to stay focused on him. And then as I do that, number five, find the right people to follow along the way. I heard a great preacher who said that you need to find those who are pacers and racers and tracers. That was awesome. I, I loved it. When, when, as soon as Gary said it, I was like writing it down. I'm going to steal it, baby. Totally. The way you steal things legally as a pastor, you know, you, the first couple of times you use it, you say, well, as Gary Godini says. And then by about the third time, you always say, well, as I like to say, you know, because I've said it three times. So that's, that's how you but uh, no, and it's exactly what Paul's teaching here. He says, man, who's pacing you? Who's pacing you? Look what he says in verse 17. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So as much as we're focused on the finish line and focused on Christ, reality is it's hard to know every day, okay, how do I do this in marriage? How do I do this in my job? How do I do this with my kids? How do I, all these things. And so Paul says, hey, find somebody ahead of you on the journey and focus on them and imitate what they do. And, and the flip side of that, if you're one of those ones older on the journey, he has the expectation you're always looking behind you and you're going, hey, come imitate me. Hey, we struggled in our marriage there too. Let us tell you about it. Oh, those were the, some of the hardest years of parenting. Man, let, let us tell you about how we blew it and what Jesus did through it. Let me tell you how I established my career. Let me tell you what I did to balance this. Let me tell you, uh, people along the way, Paul is always going, hey, just, just find someone, focus on them and imitate them. But likewise, look what he says on the second part. For many of whom I've told you, and tell you now with tears, walk as enemies of the cross. There's a lot of people out there you don't want to focus on. And look what describes them. Their, their end is destruction. 
They're not headed here. They're not headed here. So Paul says, why would you follow them? Their God is their belly. In other words, they live according to their appetites. They live according to, how can I have as much sex as I possibly can? How can I have as much pleasure as I possibly can? How can I have as much entertainment as I possibly can? How can I have as much of this life? Because, man, you only live once. And so you better get as much as you can. Paul said, those kind of people are all around you. Why would you follow them? And then look at the third description of it. They glory in their shame. We live in an age where we have more devices and more ability for people to show their shame and everybody celebrates it. And Paul says, why would you follow them? And let me ask you directly, because we live in an age where it's easy to follow people on Facebook, on Instagram, on Twitter. Just look at your list. Who are you following? They are shaping your life more than you realize. It's interesting, New York Times had an article this last March. A young woman, Lee Stein, she's not a believer. She, she would describe herself as self-professed left-wing liberal. But she started tracking, especially for young women, all these what they call insta-evangelists. They're not televangelists, insta-evangelists. Women like Gwyneth Paltrow and others that have these massive followings like 10 million, 7 million followers, and they tell you about every part of your life you need to be doing. They're influencers. I mean, we use that term because they're influencing us. And as she describes it, I I love the honesty that she puts in it. Listen to her, she said, because she says, as a left-wing secular millennial, we follow politics devoutly, but the women we've chosen as our moral leaders aren't challenging us to ask the fundamental questions that leaders of faith have been wrestling with for thousands of years. Why are we here? Why do we suffer? What should we believe in beyond the limits of our puny selfhood? She continues, she said, I long for role models my age who are not only righteous crusaders, but also humble and merciful. And that I'm not finding where I live online. There's a chasm between the vast scope of our needs and what influencers can provide. We're looking for guidance in the wrong places. I love this line. She says, maybe we actually need to go to something like church. She says, I've hardly prayed to God since I was a teenager. But the pandemic has cracked open inside of me a profound yearning for reverence for humility and awe. I have an overdraft on my outrage account. I want moral authority from someone who isn't shilling a memoir or calling out her enemies on social media for clout. Man, you feel the longing of her heart? She's going, has somebody answered these questions of why we're here? Can somebody give me something to live for beyond me? And I I want to scream to her, yes, his name is Jesus. And she's not finding that out there. Is she finding it as she rubs shoulders with us? Because we're living this way. We're running this way. 
And so I, I just challenge you, who are you following? Who, who is the pacer in front of you? And who's following you? And as I say that, you go, well, I don't know. Just find the right person, run with them. And then when Jesus has you in a place you got to be the pacer, you pace. Just go. One of my favorite Olympic stories of all time is from 1952, Helsinki Olympics. A Czech runner, Emil Zatopek. You may have never heard him. One of the greatest runners ever. Zatopek won the 5,000 meters. He won the 10,000 meter. Got the gold in both of them. And here's the phenomenal thing. He, he was signed up for those two races right before the marathon. The Czech runner for the marathon had to drop out. And so Zatopek said, I'll do it. And everybody left. They're like, you've never run a marathon in your life. In fact, they came to him right before the race. Reporters were fascinated with it. They said, what are you going to do? And he said, well, okay, who's the best runner? And it was a British runner, Jim Peters. He said, okay. I'll just uh, get behind him and run with him. And Peters found out about it and was angry. He's like, oh, some guy who's never run a marathon is going to pace off me, right? And so sure enough, when the race started, they took off, and Zatopek, he just stayed with Peters. And it made Peters so mad, he started running faster. And they, they set this blistering pace for the first 15K. And finally, at 15K, Zatopek, who's never run a marathon, by the way, he finally runs up to Peters, and he asks him, he's like, uh, is this the right pace? I mean, I've never run one of these. This doesn't feel right. <laughs> and Peter sneered at him and said, no, actually, we're going too slow. And Zatopek went, oh, okay, and started running faster. <laughs> Peters burned himself out. He didn't finish the race. Zatopek set the Olympic record. Came in two minutes ahead of the next guy. Had never run it in his life. But he, he found someone to pace him, and then when he found himself alone, you know what he did? He just kept running. And I would just challenge every one of us, if you're young, especially here, if you're a young couple, if you're just starting in life, if you're a young person, man, are you getting the right people to pace you? And if you're older, are you still running in a way that someone could follow behind you and intentionally inviting them to and inviting them to be in your life? Because you heard it here, even unbelievers, they're dying for that kind of influence. They've had enough of these influencers. They need flesh and blood ones in their life. Final point, I'll just say with Paul, and I love this, the way he finishes when he talks about this race. It's just remember you're not home yet. Just remember you're not there yet. If you're like me, these last two years, it's been pretty weary. And I get weary with world events, and I get weary with what's going on, and I'm weary with what I see in the culture in it. And the thing I get weary with the most is actually not something out there. It's the guy standing right here. I get so weary with me. I'm like, Tim, are you ever going to get over some of your junk? I love how Paul puts it at the end. Look in verse 20. He says, our citizenship is in heaven. <laughs> and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body 
by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Man, we're, we're running this race, and just remember, home, your citizenship, is the world to come. And when he, when he uses that term heaven, I, I agree with Gary, he's, he's not talking about some cloud someday, that you're going to sit on a cloud and play a harp. I mean, puke, I can't think of a worse eternity. Honestly, no wonder nobody wants to go there. He's talking about a new heaven and a new earth. He's talking about all this being recreated. He's talking about the adventure of a lifetime. He's talking about you doing work and it be the most fulfilling it's ever been. He's talking about every relationship you have is open and honest and vulnerable and real. That every room you walk in there You'll never wonder what anybody in the room's thinking about you. Because you know they love you. You know they have their absolute best for you. He's talking about worship, where some of us will have our voices redeemed, praise God. He just reminds us hey, as you're running the race, just remember. No wonder you feel out of sorts here. You were made for there. And the more you become like Christ, you're longing for there more. Because that's home. And that day's going to come that he's, he's going to actually change this old body too. So the times I get so weary with me, it's a good reminder. Oh, I'm not there yet. Thank you for your patience. I'm still under construction. And, and then you get a weekend like this and and I'll just close with this, because I think this is why Mount Hermon is so powerful. It's this little spot on the planet where we get glimpses of heaven. Glimpses of that worship. Glimpses of being a part of a body of believers and people from all different places, but you immediately come together and you have this connection in Christ. Glimpses of what that new heaven and earth will be like. Because when you see the best of creation here, it's this part that you go, oh, that gives me a glimpse of how good it will be. I love how Randy Alcorn puts it. He said, all our lives we've been dreaming of the new earth. Whenever we see beauty and water and wind and flower and deer and man and woman or child, we catch a glimpse of heaven. Just like the Garden of Eden, the new earth will be a place of sensory delight breathtaking beauty, satisfying relationships, and personal joy. That's home. That's what we're longing for. And so I, I would encourage you, you've kind of had a one-two punch from Jesus and Paul this morning. While you have a day in a place that for my money is the closest you're going to get, to being able to get more glimpses of heaven here than any other place on this planet. Don't squander it. Use this time here to think about that day there. And maybe evaluate, hey, Christ, is there anything in my life that's keeping me from living this way and having that perspective? Or maybe just rest in the beauty of it. 
Let it remind you of home. Or maybe restore again some relationships. Or let the people who are running with you, especially your family, let them know what a privilege it is to get to do life together as we all run toward Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. I thank you for Paul and uh, giving us an example in him of somebody who just, just ran the race and ran it hard. I thank you for Jesus as our Savior and our Lord who is the author of everything good in us. And he's the finisher. He's not done with us. Lord, I thank you for Mount Hermon and for the group of people you've brought together this weekend. This group will never be together again. But for this weekend, you wanted us here so that we could get a taste of home together. Lord, I pray over this next day, this last day and a half that we have here, would you use this place? Would you use the beauty? Would you use the people? Most of all, would you use your word to the power of your spirit to help us focus on what really matters, to help us express what is really in our hearts, and help us love those well that race with us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you.